Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi there, everybody, and you're very welcome to the latest episode of the South Tip Arts Podcast. This episode is a very special episode which celebrates the life and work of John Burke, whose retrospective exhibition is currently running here at South Tipperary Arts Centre. John Burke, as well as being an internationally recognised sculptor in his own right, was an inspirational teacher to a generation of leading sculptors that included Elisha Connell, Vivian Roach, Maud Cotter, Dorothy Cross, amongst others. Burke pioneered innovative, abstract sculptures in painted and patinated steel, many for projects designed by Scott Talon Walker. Today, his work is known here in Clonmel through a public art project at the entrance to the LIT campus in Clonmel and a maquette which is now housed in the Tipperary County Museum. John Burke was one of Ireland's most innovative and influential sculptors and this is a wonderful opportunity to celebrate his life and work in his hometown of Clonmel. The exhibition is composed of a number of maquettes from key projects as well as a newly commissioned 6x8 footprint of the Red Cardinal in situ in its home in Baggett Street and has already begun turning the heads of the passers-by. I sincerely hope listeners will forgive the audio quality at certain points in some of these interviews as we've been fighting against storms, rain and wind, not to mention the ongoing COVID restrictions. Because we are not allowed to have formal openings, we felt it especially important to talk to as many people as possible about the importance of John's work and the influence he has had on the Irish art world. My first guest was art historian Vera Ryan, who taught at the Crawford College of Art and Design for many years and first met John when she moved to Cork during the 1970s. Well, when I started in the Crawford School of Art in Cork in the late 1970s, John's teaching there was being wound down, Okay, you know, sadly. His impact as a great modernist sculpture teacher was evident, though. Everyone spoke about John returned from London, where his Macaulay Scholarship had got him into the Royal Academy. And he was noted to be a brilliant teacher, you know, an exceptionally mm-hmm. brilliant teacher. And there weren't that many students in the School of Art at the time, sculpture students. And out of the small number... The number who became practitioners is very large, proportionately. You know, yeah. you think of people like Ailish O'Connell and Vivian Roach and Maud Cotter and James Scanlon, John Gibbons, um, who stayed in England, and then the, other, the next generation who were influenced, people like Jim Buckley and Sean Taylor. One of the things I'm interested, apart from his genius as a teacher, is in the way I saw him at the time, coming newly to Cork. I saw his work in sheet metal as expressive of the wider zeitgeist of the city. You know, Cork was then a manufacturing city. And down the road, you had Fords and Dunlops. And 
further down the river, you had Verone Dockyard. Mm -hmm. They were still operating. And I saw John's work as having a place in that manufacturing setting. You know, his modernism. The absolutely, yeah. yeah. they lay in earlier 20th century sculpture like Name Gabo and the painting of Paul Cézanne. But basically, he was part of the post-war sculpture tradition led by David Smith. And that linked industrial methods and materials to sculptural practice. Mm. And that's what I saw John doing when I came to Cork. I saw industrial methods and sculptural practice in dialogue in the city and in the practice of John Burke. I found that very coherent. So there yeah. was that marvelous relationship, genuine, authentic relationship between the urban culture and its manufacturing and the creative culture in the School of Art, which, of course, was then in the old Customs House, now the Crawford Art Gallery. So the River Lee kind of threaded all these activities together. It was very striking in the late mm. 70s. But I didn't know much about the London period, except it was terribly prestigious. <clears throat> and mm. years later, years later, one of the sculptors, who hasn't got a huge name, but was a very distinguished sculptor, Brian Neal, K-N-E-A-L-E, he actually had um, had had John in his studio in the in London, okay. uh, as well as John going to the Royal Academy. And he came back as an extern when he was an old man to the Crawford, and he spoke so movingly about John and John's very great natural talent and great application. And I could see that there was a sort of a sense in which he was deeply saddened that John's genius hadn't been, if you like, supported and sustained. We've been unpacking all the maquettes and the show has been installed at the moment here. And a thing that strikes me about them is the attention to detail and the finishes oh, yeah. as well. And John's ability to make a beautiful maquette, so finished, so beautifully finished, was reflected in his capacity to deal with scale. The maquettes were almost always, insofar as I know, related to a particular space, addressing mm. a relationship with the space. And he was able to conceive the finish and achieve the finish if he got a chance in the large pieces as well as the small pieces. There were discerning collectors in mm. Cork in that period, I'm talking about to say the late 70s, early 80s, who really did love and look after their John Burke pieces. Mm. I'm thinking about Dr. J.B. Carney, who had a fabulous collection out in Chipley uh, in, in Blackrock Road in Cork. And his mm. John Burke was beautifully looked after. Mary Ryan, who ran our beautiful large hotel up in Montanotti, her John Burke, it was modest, but it was beautifully placed and cared for. And it articulated its modernity in, a, in relation to a 19th century house really well. So in that, what I'm going to call his first heyday, John could trust people to look, look after the, the large scale piece properly because he was there to advise them. Yeah. You know, so yeah. it's really a sad thing that when he went into decline, he wasn't there to do it. To do, no, I think people are generally careless about maintenance of, of public sculptures. Which seems incredible because, I mean, I, for one, I think they're very important. There's certain ones, I mean, in terms of place and even traveling on certain roads, like there's certain ones that you would look forward to seeing. Like um, That's right. They, they're total landmarks in place and marking a journey and part of your journey you came, you know, when you've reached that, you're, you're almost there or whatever. Do you think um, in the 70s and 80s that, that public sculpture was more, you know, treated as a more yeah. important thing? Well, I think it's quite an interesting issue because there, there were these great individuals. I mentioned Dr. J.B. Carney and Mary Ryan, who were private commissioners, you know, mm. private collectors. But there was also the great modernist architect, Ronnie Talon, who commissioned Red Cardinal mm. in 1978. And Ronnie 
what followed every aspect of from the commission to the execution. The red card was made in her own dockyard, and that's the kind of integrity between artist and community and patron mm. that I, I see as part of that era. Maybe I'm a little bit starry-eyed, but it was very cohesive. Yeah. Now, Ronnie had the maquette for years. It was in Ronnie's collection. Mm-hmm. And he loved it and respected it and treasured it. A very big personality, a very urbane, chic, um, aesthetically sophisticated person was David Hendrick, who had the Hendricks Gallery on mm-hmm. Stephen's Green. And he, first of all, he would take on young art. Mm-hmm. You know, he wasn't, he was very much looking out for new talent. And he also did introduce collectors from, you know, the mass of 1960s and things like that, the New Ireland, to artists. And I think once it became a bit more bureaucratized, something did get lost when we lost the great individual private patrons. We didn't quite make it into the more, if you like, collective bureaucracy. Yeah, that doesn't seem to happen so much anymore, does it? No, it doesn't happen Mm. as much anymore. But I suppose power is more anonymous now, isn't it? Mm. It's interesting, Emer, that his work was so well liked by so many people in the 60s and 70s because, of course, it was the era of Rosk exhibitions. You know, Ireland was opening up. It didn't have an Irish Museum of Modern Art. It didn't have great permanent art collections with 20th century work in it. But there was a great feeling for it. And the fact that John's work is abstract, you know, and formalist, makes mm. it a little bit particularly interesting that his work was so valued. It shows how sophisticated certain aspects of the culture was right. at the time. Yeah, yeah, that's quite true. You know, they work very well in both in and outside modernist buildings where there's more structure and less mass because he was able to indicate volume without mass. And that's yes. a particular elegance, I think, to his to the relationship of his pieces to space. You know, elegance is, is such a lovely word to describe them. To see them all sort of gathered in the, their, the shadows that they're, I'm yeah. starting to notice yeah. that they throw and like yeah. there's no lights on them or anything. Yes, they almost don't need anything. They're very refined in the positive sense, aren't they? That you yeah. say finished, you see, he had a huge belief and the importance of craftsmanship. He, he, it's not that he respected craft necessarily per se. He wanted to move towards what he would think of fine art. But whether it was craft or art, he absolutely had to have that beautiful finish. And sometimes when works of art are very well finished, it's risky because you lose something. But I've never known any of John's sculptures to lose something with the beautiful finish he gave them. They're all, not all, but they're typically full of verve. You know, they all have their own rhythm, very different yeah. rhythms. So his expressive range is quite large. Yes, I totally agree with you there. They're all quite different. It seems like maybe there's distinct phases to, yes. um, you know, yes. the coloured stuff, and then there's some that are black. The use of bright colour, you know, uniformly mm-hmm. applied, is exciting. Those are exciting. But I do. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. 
Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You love the black ones. The black ones are gorgeous. Oh, they're yeah, very yeah. beautiful, aren't they? Yeah. But, but you know, Emer, one of the things I think about John is when I came to Cork, you know, he was still the celebrity in the late 70s. And by the time Cork was celebrating its 800th anniversary as a city in 1985, I think a particular golden age had ended for John. A short one, admittedly, but a particular one. David Hendricks, his dealer, had died of cancer early, too young. Fords and Dunlops have closed, shocking the whole city. We've never really recovered as a city, maybe. Maybe mm. we have, I don't know. And John was no longer teaching in the School of Art. So that, that was a kind of first phase when we had, what I'm talking about, this coherence between social forces and his creativity. But you know the big blue sculpture associated with Cork 800 that's on the Wilton Roundabout near Cork mm-hmm. University mm-hmm. Hospital? I yeah. actually see that as elegiac of that end of that first golden age for John. Um, the flat planes of coloured metal, you know, sheet metal, like mm. kind of clit wings. They're quite tense and the geometric shoulders bracing themselves against the wind. Now, I know you're not, we're not meant to thematize these pieces. Yeah. Because they're, they're non-narrative, they're abstract. But John mm. did usually give them titles. And I think the titles sometimes tease, at least they tease, tease me into bringing my own narrative. Yeah. And the rhythms create potential speculative narratives or moods, maybe more moods than narratives. And I certainly see the Wilton Roundabout sculpture, which is so neglected, wrongly neglected. I do see it as elegiac of that first phase of John's, if you like, golden age as a sculptor back mm-hmm. in Cork. Yeah. And I would say that after Cork 800, it was, you know, after 1985, without the teaching, without David Hendricks, yeah. without Fords and Dunlop, there was a different world for him to enter yeah. into. I imagine he sent a bit of drift from... I think mm-hmm. so. Although he was rather anti-establishment in manner, you know, mm-hmm. and not averse to using expletives, which probably should be deleted, <laughs> he was constructively integrated into civic life in Cork. For a long time, in his heyday, which was too short, he had credibility. He could deliver. Yes. He yes. could cut to the chase. And businessmen like Tom Cavanagh and Fermoy and John Bowen of Bowen Construction were great supporters of his. Mm. And Robbie MacDonald, who was the founder director of Triscoll Art Centre, says that John Burke Gribe Hugh Coveney TD, that's father of Simon Coveney TD, Richard mm. Wood, who was the great collector, and businessman Dennis Murphy, whose family had the woolen mills out in Douglas as his three, I don't know who the fourth was, three horsemen of the apocalypse. You know, he, he, they were forces to change the, the culture into yeah. something more frightening maybe and modern, but shaking yeah. out complacency. Even though John was, if I may use the word, well, disillusioned is the polite word, disillusioned by the School of Art because it discontinued his teaching, he was very deeply committed to the arts infrastructure in Cork. You know, he helped Triscoll to get a permanent space on Tobin Street. And he curated a biennial, a really superb biennial. He curated it a few times called the Sculpture and Drawing Exhibition. And typical mm. mischievous John, it was known by its acronym, SAID, the SAID <laughs> Exhibition, yeah. in the Crawford Gallery. And this was an outstanding exhibition that he put together. Yeah. So for that second phase, he, he was working away quietly, but he hadn't dropped out of cultural life in the city. He was there working for us in a way more behind the scenes rather than directly as a teacher, say, for example. So he was very loyal to his adopted city of Cork. 
very great force for good in his heyday. You know, I'm learning that as I go along about, you know, it's so interesting to learn so much. Seymour, I hope that's useful. I hope I see the exhibition. Zira, thanks so much for giving me your time um, on this very, very stormy day. Thanks very much. Take care, Emma. God bless you. All right, mind yourself. Bye-bye. Elif Shaconnell is an Irish sculptor and one of a cohort of students that studied under John Burke at the Crawford School of Art. She's a founder director of the National Sculpture Factory in Cork, a former member of the Arts Council of Ireland, a member of Estona and a member of the RHA. And just this year, she was elected International Fellow at the Royal Society of Sculptures in London. I was delighted to talk to Elish about her time in Cork and the inspiration that John provided as a teacher. Like everybody in Cork knows about him because he taught in the college. He was a really important influence on lots of people like Maud Cotter, Vivian Roach, myself. And um, I'm so grateful that I had a teacher like that because back in those days, in the 70s, it was just the art teaching course we did. And that was very, very limited. So he he brought in all these new ideas. I mean, we heard he was coming a year before he came to the school because he had won the Macaulay Fellowship. He had gone to work for Brian Neal the sculptor who I met later on in London. And and then he travelled around Africa. So, I mean, in the early 70s, that was a very radical thing to do. So we heard about him before we ever, before he ever came to the college. And I mean, he was just like such a breath of fresh air. You can imagine we're dr- drawing from the antique, you know. Oh, but he was uh, prominent in the art world even before he began to teach you. He must have been. I mean, I was very, very young. I mean, I was about 17. So like, yes, people would have known about him. And he had great support in Cork from business people. And Richard Wood was very supportive. He was a collector. He just came in with, with such a blast you know, of colour and enthusiasm in this 1970s Ireland. You know, you can just imagine the influence he's been to London. You know, nobody came back. If you went to London, you didn't come back. Wonderful to hear this kind of stuff because there's very little out there to be found. In those days, there was no documentation of art. And I always said you could be doing the most amazing work in Cork and nobody cared. It was really Dublin focused. Right. So you had to go to Dublin. If you wanted any attention from the art world at all, you had to go to Dublin. And in fact, when I was 18, I mean, he taught me he taught me how to weld, which is incredible. That was the beginning. Mm-hmm. I mean, before he came, I was doing plaster and plaster drove me crazy. You know, you had no control. Nobody showed you how to actually work with the stuff. You're left to do everything yourself and learn yourself, which, you know, it's not easy. And so I was really frustrated with plaster. I kind of knew I wanted to be a sculptor and I used to carve plaster. Yeah. And what was interesting about John was I think he was supposed to be teaching us modeling from life. You know, that was what it was on our syllabus. Yeah. But yeah, he, yeah. I forget this, lads, you know, first of all, really model from life. You've got to make an armature and the wire and, you know, wire is, he said, you should really weld your armature, you know. So, and he had learned to weld and he trained with Brian Neal, who's a big, huge steel sculptor, you know. Uh, he'd met, you know, Anthony Caro and all those people. So he had all these incredible ideas and he he turned this room in the college into a studio, into a sculpture studio where we welded bits of metal and I guess for him, it was really nice that he could see he had other young people. I mean, he's only yeah. a little bit older than us. He had other young people who are so enthusiastic about his ideas. So he, he kind of handpicked his students, actually, from the life modelling. He picked me, Vivian Roach, Maud Carter, and then John Gibbons came in later. And like, we had the run of the sculpture studio. We had petty cash. <laughs> we had like wow. Barry Maloney 
parts of it was really good. You know, it was a question of, you know, what do you want, lads, setting up a sculpture studio? Mm-hmm. I was like, well, we need welding rods, we need this. And we had to then go and learn how to weld properly in the, in the um, tech. Yeah. So we had to do a course in ankle. And that was actually quite difficult because they did gas welding, which was really hard. And, you know, we were girls and they wanted to show us up all the time. But it was kind of great. Really empowering then, you know, as far as yeah, no, it was. It was. And I mean, the, the college at that point was it was like a girls finishing school. I'm not exaggerating. There's about four men in the entire college who stood out like, you know, this is really true. The 70s Ireland, there was no career. How could you have a career, you know, in 70s Ireland? All you could do is teach. And I mean, it was drummed into me like, oh, my God, you have to be a teacher. You could never be an artist, you know. So that was drummed into me by everybody. So like I just knew I did not want to teach. I hated school anyway. You know, I hated secondary school. So. The idea of going back into that system would have killed me dead, you know, I mean. So somebody like John offered us, a, you know, you could imagine a way out of, of this, what your future might be, you know, that you could actually be an artist. Because he was, he was an artist, like he was working, well, he was teaching as well, I mean, he was. But he, I mean, he gave up so much for his work, you know, in the beginning, he, you know, he taught part-time and he lived in a caravan. Like, does, do people know this? He actually lived in a caravan and his studio was in an old um, kind of a, a stable that a guy called Forrester and Blarney lent him in you know, this kind of thing. So, I mean, he he had this amazing existence. It was so hard to be an artist. You couldn't possibly have a flat or an apartment. You had to find places that were free to live in, you know? Yeah. And that's how he did it. Like, he lived in this caravan. Like, it was it's very difficult, really. And, and there was another man who owned a steel factory who really helped him. And then Joe McHugh, who was a city manager, mm-hmm. really helped him with commissions like the Peace and Wilton Roundabout. Mm-hmm. That was Joe who organised that. And Cork City, I have to say, is a disgrace. The way it hasn't looked after his work. It's it's disgraceful, yeah. you know. And I even as a young woman, you know, I lived in Bishopstown and I would go on the bus into the college and and then afterwards just taking the bus and seeing how his piece wasn't repainted, it was graffitied. That just, you know, it was kind of very sad really. But uh, Cork doesn't appreciate its artists, like it, it just it didn't appreciate him. Um strange country we live in. It is, it is, like it's it's weird. But um but you know, when I was eighteen, well maybe eighteen or nineteen, and I think it was Vivian and myself, he said, uh, why don't you two go and enter into the living art this year? Like we were we were eighteen or nineteen, I can't remember now, but it was two years in art college. Yeah. But I was making big, huge steel things. I mean, I was actually making huge steel sculptures, you yeah. know. We actually, this is really true, we had no transport to the scrapyard, which is where we got our our steel. So we had to, like the, the scrapyard was a couple of miles away in, in Blackpool and it was all little narrow back streets. We had to take a handcart, literally, and, and walk it through the city. Our overalls, you know. Yeah. And we would just walk the two miles because he wasn't going to make... Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Make it easy for us. I mean, that's what he was not going to do. 
yeah, yeah. So we would go and get the, all the scrap that we liked and no van, nothing, you know, just go and get it yourself. Yeah, like not like today, you know, sort of. So that was fantastic. And then um, I got into the living art. I mean, going to that opening and I mean, that was just like, but the consequences of that, I started showing then in those shows, they were open submission shows. So I like, I was only 18 or something. And then like, by the time I was 25, I was a has-been, you know, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? I was like, yeah. and by the time I was 30, I was ready for retirement, you know, because I'd been in every yeah. show and... Yeah, and actually, I meet yeah. people when I was in my thirties, and they were saying things like, "God, I thought you were about 60 because <laughs> I had done every show. You know, I had, oh, wow. I'd actually been doing all these exhibitions. And just having a look at your website just before, um, my God, your CV—it's absolutely huge. I know, and it, I have to, I have to edit it as well. But but it's that's so thanks well. to John Burke, you know. I, that is thanks to John Burke, really and truly. And he showed with the Hendrix Gallery. And then I, you know, when he left the college, then it was kind of strange. We didn't really see him, you know, because they're, they're friendships you set up in the college system. Yeah. And then they don't exist outside of that system. Yeah. So then there is no real art world in Cork. So, you know, you might see him kind of say hi in a pub or something. But, you know, I think that kind of, that lovely contact that we had as students was, it was just gone very instantly, you know. And I think that was really hard for him as he had invested so much in us. Yeah. And even John Gibbons, you know, he encouraged John Gibbons to go to London, go and get into St. Martin's. The first piece of sculpture I ever made, he said, you know, go and get that photograph professionally. No, I had hardly any money, but I did it. And he said, when he saw the photograph, he said, you know, that will get you into the Royal College of Art this minute, you know? Like, talk about giving a student confidence, you know? Oh, yeah, like, yeah. he was just so positive. So I really owe him so much. I really do. I mean, we all went our separate ways, but he, he introduced that whole thing of you could be an artist, like God, you know. He was the only bloody full-time artist I knew I ever met in my life when I, you know, when I was young. Otherwise, it was people you read about in books. And this was a real person. How important is that? I, I guess he, he supported himself afterwards, after teaching. He got big commissions and, you know, he was doing very, very well. But I think it's a great disadvantage, actually, even back in the 80s, to be based in Cork. It was a huge disadvantage, you know. Rather um, than Dublin. Oh, yeah. You know, it's a scene there, you know, and you're out of that. So yeah. especially back in those days, it was like, I think it was really important to go to openings and, you know, connecting with people. So um, he kind of fell out of that, you know, he did kind of fall out of that because in a way he was too successful, I think, to go into open submission shows. Yes. Do, do you know this very, this yeah. kind of, a, and he always had his solo shows to work for, so. Um, I suppose it gets to the stage where you have to make the calls that, you know, you're kind of gone up a level and you can't. Yes, exactly. You know, he was, like he had done that huge piece in outside bank, it was the Bank of Ireland. It's now actually outside the health services executive. Yes. You know the big red piece, it's always on the news. We've got and a giant print of that yeah. as part of this show okay i would and love to see the show the ceiling it's going to look amazing yeah that yeah. piece actually had been in the other part of the building where the michael bulfin was yes so they moved it to run to the better part the front which is really nice i thought that was brilliant that was scott talon walker did that so that is just brilliant you know but I'm still very angry about the Wilton roundabout piece, which is a very prominent place in Cork. And I mean, I have looked at that in all kinds of moods as that when I was a young person and in all kinds of lights, you know, yeah. and really appreciated it. And it was such a landmark for Bishopstown. Yeah, yeah. And you think of all the people who went through Bishopstown, like they all know that piece intimately, especially if you take the number eight bus and you go around it, you know. Yeah. So like, I don't know, Cork City Council, I don't know. It's really sad they don't appreciate them. It sounds like really happy times in the... the incredible, world. incredible teacher. 
like the atmosphere was just in our little workshop that we had it was it was amazing it was just dynamic and of course we were all secretly competing with each other you know <laughs> that's yeah. that was part of it you know yeah. would his would the large scale of what he was doing really have influenced you to go big oh yeah absolutely yeah. um like i remember he would always say get out of ireland as much as possible like because he'd been really into traveling and you know every summer i would go on a j1 visa to the states you know there i mean i'd make a point of going to see huge sculpture shows and you know i would travel through america to see a piece you know if i had to like uh, i went out of my way to see lots as much art as possible even once i was in the midwest and i i came across the most amazing show ever you know in another city in Iowa. So like from the very beginning, I was looking at sculpture and reading about it. And, and that was all because of his, his encouragement. I think he saw things in certain people too. You know, he picked the people that he would really influence. And he kind of gave us one-to-one -one tutorials when it wasn't even part of this. Like we were supposed to be modeling from life. We were supposed to be doing figures and heads and, you know. But the fact that Barry Maloney, the principal, gave him this space to do that yeah. was great. And then having opened things up like that, he's just gone. You know, there's a new system in and he is just gone. He's sidelined. Yeah. And I think that was very political. And I think it's, it was very sad that he didn't get the support from the college. I guess his legacy is the wonderful students that went through his hands and how they, you know, yeah. created careers from. Obviously, you've all said that he's been so influential to you, like the other ladies you mentioned as well, all seem to have the very same thing to say that he was um, yeah, yeah. a singular sort of person in their lives. Yeah, he was amazing. He was just, I think I was so lucky to have a teacher like that. You know, I was just so lucky to have somebody like that because um, teachers are so important. But I, what I think about art teachers is it's so important to have real live artists who make a living from art. Yeah. And it's such a career being an art teacher. And it's so, it's so now about language and, you know, practice. Like, I mean, for us, the most important thing was getting a studio, getting your own space, you know, and, and all that sort of thing. And it was, it was really difficult like, to set up a, a steel sculpture studio in the 1980s with zero money was really difficult. But we saw that he did it yeah. and that was important. And then the sculpture factory definitely came out of him as well, indirectly. Okay, I think I'm going to let you go, Eilish. Thanks a million. Okay. Thanks. Bye. Sculpture Maud Cotter was also a student of John's during the late 1970s. She has gone on to a very prestigious career. She is also co-founder of the National Sculpture Factory and a member of Estona, as well as being a faculty member of the Crawford Municipal College of Art and Design. As a student, Maud spent a lot of time helping John in the construction of his work and the finishing off of some pieces. And she remembers those days with great fondness. I mean, he had just won the, he had won the Macaulay Fellowship, you see, and he'd gone off traveling in Africa and Europe. And we were very lucky because we got that incredible conviction and energy. He came back, he was like throbbing with energy. Yeah. And I was only thinking, you know, he gave us lectures on sculpture. I mean, he was part time, you know, I mean, everything that was happening in Britain, he was on, you yeah. know. So he spoke to us in great detail about where the condition of contemporary sculpture was at then. Mm. You know, we were totally tuned in. And then he decided, of course, myself and John had a major big argument about welding. And that would not have been unusual. Yeah. You know, because he created a kind of a dynamic environment. There was none of this kind of 
and pandering each had to we had to earn the right to be taught by him you know so he set us tasks uh, i know that he had set elisha task and he set me a task and basically based on how you survived him and the task you you then were allowed into the inner sanctum of the sculpture department where you would be taught but you didn't get there like just because you're a student didn't mean you had the right to to yeah. act you know well for example he eventually accepted me in because I pestered him. Yeah. And I pestered him at night with class, you know, when it was more embarrassing yeah. for him. And um, he let me into the class, but he, he sort of put me, sort of restoring huge, huge bins of kind of warm infested clay first. I had to do that. And then he gave me a task to do, but he still would let me touch sculpture for a whole year. I had to model from life for a whole year before he'd even let me cast, you know. Eventually he let me into the sculpture department. And then he sort of went to teach me welding, but then he used to lose patience with me and I wouldn't let him take my electrode, you know, because yeah. he'd be, come on, I'll do it for you. And I'd say, no, 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 show me how to do it. So he set up classes for us. I mean, not just for me. I think there, there were other people who wanted it as well. And I actually found during the lockdown an image of that group of students down in Boland with John and the principal. Oh, wow. And, yeah, and we're all there. And um, I do remember John, we were walking by this huge ship, you know, absolutely Leviathan ship. Like it was amazing. John was saying that his heart misses the beach, you know, when he goes, when he walks by that much steel, you know. So his passion was like, was intense. He then turned around and had this major big exhibition. He took over the Jury's Hotel. I mean, if you could imagine, uh, kind of, um, it was divided into four lawns and it had a crisscross path in it mm-hmm. and it was this huge track of open ground mm-hmm. right next to the river and John mounted an exhibition of work there and I was working with John helping him with his sculpture at that point now like I went into college in 72 so I was just fresh in like that would have been 73 when he had the exhibition and um, I just remember the day of the opening I was supposed to invigilate and I was sitting at the table with this kind of cruciform path and all his sculpture and he just couldn't stand the sight of me just sitting there doing nothing so I was finishing work right up to the end with the wet and dry sandpaper he had me finishing his work like I was just a student but you know and he'd come along and sometimes he'd spit on it you know for the wet and dry because yeah. to keep keep the work going and to, he'd um he was very nervous and uh yeah I remember him walking around he'd come back and check me and give out to me for something I was doing wrong but it's kind of being nice too you know it was just you know I always remember that day and I stayed on for the opening sure I didn't know anybody I just kind of sat there and that was incredibly ambitious huge so we have this kind of sense of scale from John, you know. Yeah. Would you yeah. say that it definitely influenced the scale of what you do yourself? Did you? Did it make you really want to to go big and to get into all those industrial materials? In some ways, it made this make myself Elish and living fearless. In some ways, you know. I remember he made me. He kept saying, "You have to go to Dublin. You have to go to Dublin." Sidney Nolan, the painter, had this huge painting. I mean. I don't know how many meters, maybe 20 meters, 30 meters, I don't know, by whatever. It was a series of small pieces Mm. and it formed a huge snake just in the RHA gallery. Uh And so John wanted us to experience, as a sculptor tutor, 
he pestered me to go to Dublin to see a painter yeah. because of the scale of the work. Yeah. And he also, like as a student, I mean, I started exhibiting with himself and other tutors, you know, as a student. I was invited into a solo exhibition. I have the catalogue there. And like, I think as well, he encouraged us, like I was in a living art exhibition, which I mean, I must have been 74, you know, I was exhibiting in Dublin. Yeah. And, and actually, John brought my piece up to Dublin for me. And I remember he was helping me to bring it back, yeah? But this oh. is typical. Uh, so I collected my, my piece. And of course, he's off doing his own thing all day. And I said to him, well, well, where will I meet you? You know, so like he said, oh, stand outside the GPO. You'd be grand, I'll pick you up. So he, he'd have to wait, of course, until pubs closed. Yeah. So I was standing there outside the GPO with a piece of sculpture, like for hours. <laughs> I didn't even have bubble wrap on it. It was just the raw steel. And um, but Joe and John turned up and we drove back. But he made it possible. I mean, you know, I would, we, we had nothing, no money. But yeah, he, I, that was a living art exhibition I was in, actually. Yeah. Yeah. So he kind of harassed us into doing things and, or made us or expected it or you know abused us if he didn't, he didn't do it you know so he was fantastic really like that it's relieving to have somebody that motivational kind of driving you pushing you at that young age when you're yeah John believed he said the best thing a teacher can bring is resistance to the students and also that the other student understands who they are artistically yeah. by acknowledgement of that then resists that, yeah. which is a natural condition. There's yeah. none of this kind of pandering to the to the tutor and, and copying the tutor. One was expected with a certain resistance was, was his culture of engagement. And it just empowered student. So even though he was just part-time, he, he, he'd given a lot of thought to how he interacted with students. And of course, it wouldn't be every student to be just certain students that he feel would, would be worth it, you know. I remember my, it was my second piece I did. I wouldn't let John near anything I was making until it was done. And then he could say what he liked. I remember he just kidding me, for God's sake, he said, I thought you could do better than that. Oh. He left the room. And so I got the oxycetic torch and I cut it all up <laughs> and kicked it around the room. And of course, yeah. afterwards I realized I've got a completely different aesthetic. Yeah. That was a piece, you know, and I was really yeah. annoyed afterwards. I cut it up, but I never let anybody do that to me again. Yeah. You know, I think it must have been a test or something. I failed. Yeah. Maybe it was a test, exactly, to see like how. Exactly, yeah. that I didn't stand up for my own aesthetic which is very different to his yeah. but I learned from it what a great thing to learn at such a young age you know to be challenged to that level that you it's a wonderful realisation to come to at such an early stage in your career so I'm sure that yeah. bent forward yeah. yeah I think he accelerated us yeah. certainly accelerated my um, tenacity and kind of drive you know and um, also I admired his work and also he, he loved Turnbull you know um, William Turnbull and David Smith and I naturally loved line so you know he introduced me to these artists I don't know how many years he was studying there and of course after college when I had my first one person exhibition mm. I think it was 1983 in the Crawford Art Gallery at the reception <laughs> over in the Kilo, which was the bar across the road from the Crawford Art Gallery John was so delighted I'd had this 
great big show, you know. I'd put a lot of effort into it. And he jumped up on the tables and he was dancing on the tables in the bar. Because <laughs> he probably had a few drinks taken, but nevertheless, he was, you know, he was so generous, like spirited. He liked to see you get on. Yeah, he's obviously very proud of you that night. Well, I wouldn't go that far, but he was like delighted. So John was a force of nature in that sense. He had an international ambition and he had a, an international scale of engagement. There wasn't that kind of level of opportunity for him that should have been here. But we were lucky he was in Cork. It seems like at that time in Ireland that, um, you know, the kind of living art and then the Rosk and all those things, that things were just beginning to kind of yeah. merge in a little bit. And then it all kind of went to pot with a recession and then everything just kind of fell apart again. And it sort of lost the momentum that it was beginning to... That's yeah. the sense I get from it. I mean, in terms of what the capacity of the art sector and the networks that were there in Ireland at the time, was very slim, very slim. There was, but the funny thing is, like, strangely enough, there was only one gallery in Cork, the Lovett Gallery, Lovett's Key, and they were very, you know, enterprising and, you know, they're fine, fine gallery. And in fact, they're still the one gallery that's left in Cork, now a commercial gallery, because of the last recession. But of course, you're talking about the, the kind of dip in the 80s. I mean, in some ways, because... For him, that would have been much more serious than it would yeah. have been for us because we were starting. In and out, yeah, yeah. But he had some... You know, we started the National Sculpture Factory and there was a lot of drive in that yeah. and um, gained kind of ways of doing things. You know, we, we weren't provided with materials in college, so we were used to scavenging and trading and yeah. we'd just, just get materials wherever we could. A professional sculptor, that would have been much more difficult, you know? Of course, yeah, yeah. It seems um, that the, the times all kind of fed into the way everything happened. Just uh, Eilish mentioned that the kind of the dockyards were all closing down and that the, all this material kind of became available from all these industries yeah. that were finishing up. So like, I suppose you had access to things that maybe you we wouldn't did. be able to get your hands on. The uh, first major purchase we made was a guillotine, which would have been worth about 60 grand. And we got that less than 10. The way it went was we decided we were going to do it and it took about a year to actually find a place and persuade the part, about a year and a half, maybe two years, mm. to persuade the local authority to give us the building. We set up a company then and we began to involve a lot of other people and yeah. and we had a fabulous technician working with us on a really who checked everything out i mean literally well Elisha was in london at this stage but myself and viv felt we had to work on the floor because owen would say look there's a such and such available and if you take it now you can have it for this but you know there was no point in waiting we just had yeah. to purchase we built up just enough we didn't overdo it because we weren't we wanted to be responsive to what other artists wanted mm-hmm. um and gradually built it up, you know. To get back to John, just like I think, I suppose one of his legacies is a good selection of his students, which I, obviously goes to show what a really good teacher he was, went on yeah. to achieve such great things. Your class really seems to have, you know, shone and been able to yeah. really develop their skills under him. Yeah, it was that dynamic. But also, you see, for me anyway, I really learned, like, because I was working on his work, you know, like I'd have to be holding things while he's welding it and be getting yeah. bored to be you know, to be budging, you know. Everything had to be so-so. And he made things in a sequence that was kind of unusual. But I, it's only as I matured, I realised 
that he was preserving this incredible interconnection of line. Like some of the joints and the, the way that it's, it's almost like anatomical, like the mass sometimes comes off a very fine joint or, mm. or the way that they interact. Spatial elements, they're, yeah. they, they're very fine. So he, he, he would worry something out and spend ages getting it to sit right and test it. Yeah. And then he always, I think he had to kind of finish things as he went in. And then, of course, he, um, he would spend ages sanding it. But it was not just to do with having a nice surface. It was to do with how the light fell on the piece. We often talked about that. It's quite special to be able to have had that experience to just observe a master at work like that. So like the minute detail, you know, and the absolute steadiness, I mean, endurance. And, you know, he would spend ages. Yeah. Like if I were finishing something, like I couldn't believe how long I had to do it. I mean, just never, ever. Yeah. And of course, you know, if some of his smaller pieces are particularly intricate, and it's interesting that um, I think uh, Turnbull had that kind of witticism in his work too. You know, how the pieces just switched certain energy and dynamic at a certain point. And um, he, he understood form. Like he was talking about the, the Burgess of Calais, you know, he loved that piece. And he was always talking about how something should work from 360 degrees every single point of it should hello it is ryan and i was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com i looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing they were also playing chumba casino coincidence i think not everybody's loving having fun with it chumba casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Work, you know, this is a kind of a particularly holistic kind of way of looking at it, but that the, the piece should be really cohesive mm. sculpturally. So he would say, like, there was a sculptural hole in something. If it didn't pull in the space and operate fully in, so I began to really identify with those spatial things, like it more. But for me, it was always about air and the intangibility of air. So I was, I was very into linear work as against um, planal work, you know, mm-hmm. very physical work. But it still, it still meant that, like, I'd make something, but I'd kick it around the floor or I'd swing it on a rope from different points just to see how, as it moved, that everything was working, you know, but these were all points that Don would say. But of course, that's the kind of way he taught us. He he never, he'd just say the odd thing. Almost taught you to investigate or something. Yeah, he'd he'd say something and he'd let you figure it out. It just seems to have been a brilliant time to have been in that college, you know, it really does. I think, you know, certainly his work hasn't been given the kind of serious context it it deserves. I mean, I know the Irish Museum of Modern Art owned two pieces and that it's in collections, but certainly a very rigorous, rigorous retrospective, I think. A very scholarly work, I think, would have to be. We'll wrap it up, Maud. I just want to say my thanks for um, having a chat with me today. It's been lovely. Thank you so much for getting in touch and for putting in the energy for John. That's great, you know. 
Vivian Roach is a sculptor who lives and works in County Cork. She's a member of Astona, the RHA. She's a former member of the Arts Council, a founder member and the first chairperson of the Natural Sculpture Factory in Cork and the recipient of an honorary doctorate from UCC in 2006. She also served as a member of the board of the National Gallery of Ireland. Vivian is another of John's students who went on to have a hugely illustrious career of her own. And I was delighted to have an opportunity to chat with her where she shared some of her reminiscences. Well, um, I suppose I remember when John Burke came back from his period in, he had been traveling and then he had been working under uh, the sculptor Brian Neal in London. And he came back to teach in the Crawford, which was actually simply the School of Art when I was there in my second year. And he was really dynamic. And he just, anyone who was vaguely interested in sculpture, I think just kind of were drawn to him immediately. What was fantastic is that in my second year, having kind of had, it was before there were foundation year courses or anything like that, we were at that stage, the only qualification was an art teacher cert, which was in fact a whole lot of exams in different areas like life drawing, painting, you know, different kinds of craft work metalwork etc and John was in the sculpture room I was one of the lucky ones to kind of be interested and then drawn into that space and so he was there for my other three years in the School of Art and he had a huge influence on me and the group around us at that time and uh, I think probably it was in my third year that third or four years mm-hmm. that I used to help him in his own studio yeah. and yeah. maybe on like one day a week or something like that mm-hmm. I used to go out to Blarney to where he was working in a farmyard he was working using the kind of equipment of the, the, the farm welding and grinding and that kind of equipment that would have been there and so I, I helped him with the an exhibition that he had in Jury's Hotel in Cork. I'm not sure what year that exhibition was, but I remember helping him with the work, doing a lot of finishing work. Yes. And it was a great experience for me yeah. because it was a little bit like apprenticeship. And in a sense, that's exactly the way he acted as a teacher. It was much more like an apprentice's way of working with somebody. The other thing I remember was that uh, when he arrived from London, he brought a big batch of slides with him that were really contemporary then of a lot of sculptors like Philip King. I just remember a whole lot of people he introduced us to. Uh, Again, they were making work at that point and he had just kind of, I think he had taken the slides himself. And to have that available, you have to remember this is before the internet before you knew what was going on next door not not to mind in the next country Mm. and so that was really amazing and we used to have these very interesting he'd he'd have slide lectures and we'd go through all that work so I suppose I had over those years I, I was then working myself in steel certainly by my third year but probably by my second year I had started working in steel and steel became my primary material for for quite a number of years mm-hmm. and uh, his influence was just really huge in the school at that time for us sculptors yeah 
It seems Maud actually um, tells kind of a couple of funny stories about uh, helping him to finish off stuff as well. And she obviously worked on the pieces too. And that he was such a stickler for detail and fine finish and everything. That must have had obviously a massive influence on your own sense of finish in your own work then when you came to produce your it own. Did. I mean, it, the other thing that, that John did was he, he felt if we were going to be welding sculpture, then we should be like welders. We should be good welders. And he, he set up a link with the, um, the VEC, the uh, tech as it was called at that stage, and had a special course made in the tech for us art students. So we were getting really, not only was John teaching us like more the fine art side of things, but we were also getting really, really good skill development through the welding teachers in the core VEC tech school at that time. That was really amazing. So yeah, he was a real stickler for finish and for for ways of working with steel that was appropriate to the material itself. And he, health and safety was not his strong point. It wasn't even, there weren't even words in those days. I particularly remember that Eilish and I used to uh, share the, the main sculpture studio a lot of the time because we were in the same year and we might be painting our sculpture. We were using car sprays at that stage. Yeah. And we'd go in and we'd, one of us would be painting, let's say, in yellow, and the other would be working in the room. Yeah. We barely had masks on. We did actually have dust masks, I'd say. And uh, we'd come out of the sculpture studio, take off our masks, and we'd have lines of whatever colour left on our faces. But um, I mean, the stories, I suppose there are lots of stories. I'm not a great one for relaying stories, actually. Yeah. You know, I, I, don't, yeah. I don't remember those kind of details. But when I went, I went to the States the year after I finished uh, art school. I think one of the real influences, actually, for me at that point with John was that he, he had such a strong influence on the whole department mm. and on me personally in terms of bringing back that kind of British strong sculptural tradition at that time that when I went to the States as a J1 student I decided when I started looking around there I decided that actually I wanted to go to our art college in the States rather than in okay. the UK which would yeah. have been maybe a more natural choice and in a sense that was partly to just have a, another influence layered on top of the one that yeah. John had already given me yeah. and I, I think he, he was very supportive of that I mean he, he obviously was part of when I was applying to go to I was in the school at the museum of fine arts in Boston and when I was applying he was obviously extremely helpful and all of that but the kind of teaching there then was so different and it was more, uh, you had a lot of different, people were working in different materials and they were introduced mm -hmm. to me at that point, you know. But steel was still my, my main material mm -hmm. even then. And um, then when I finished, when I came back from the States and just set up working myself, mm -hmm. Again, he, he was, you know, hugely supportive making things happen. Also, I do remember there was a great exhibition on the grounds of Trinity. I can't remember what the show was called. And, and because I'm here in Edinburgh, I don't have quick yeah. access to yeah. whatever's at home. But um, it was a, a sculpture show. 
that was put on in the grounds of Trinity. I'm thinking around 1975, maybe. Right. And John had it that Eilish and I both showed in that exhibition. Right. And it was my first time showing with, you know, professional sculptors yeah. that wasn't a student show. And it was, it was really a very... It was a fantastic thing to be part of. And as far as I remember, that was just before I went to the States. It was that summer before I was then in the States. So, and, and then he introduced me to David Hendricks. Yeah. And then I, I showed with David Hendricks, then, who was his gallery. Yes, David, yeah. He showed with David Hendricks. And um, I showed with David Hendricks then until he died. So, he, I mean, he absolutely helped and set up all my early career in yeah. a sense. I don't really like to use the term career. He seems to have really empowered you or perhaps challenged you to um, like show your work. It was just assumed that as soon as you, well, you, you should be open to all the influences. But yeah. like, I, I think that would be one thing John himself would have felt, that yeah. travel alone was very good for one and then you you kind of absorbing things as you're if you're traveling but that to keep the focus on the making of work mm. so i think there was never a period where there was a gap between education let's say and actually working as a sculptor i went straight into it wow. um knowing that those first few years were probably going to be very difficult anyway mm. but mm. the sense of it was that this is the world you're in now yeah. and you deal with it professionally, you, yeah. you make work yeah. and you show that work. I think I had my first in-person show maybe two years after leaving art school. Wow. Yeah, something like that, you know, two and a half years yeah. maybe. And it was a case of like, yeah, just go with it. You all seem really driven in that way that you all, your careers kicked off really quite, quite young, like straight out of college. It was almost like um, the fact that you were you were showing with kind of established people already that your work just yeah. got seen by. Well, I, I, the right I think one of the interesting things in Cork at that time, and, and I've said something about this lately. Actually, I was reminded of it lately, is that when I started in the School of Art, I was barely 17 years of age in 1970. And the year that we started, there were, from memory, there were 50 first year uh, students. The whole school up to that stage, as far as I remember, was 16 students. So we were suddenly a big group. There was suddenly a kind of an interest in art education, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But it also meant that there weren't that many people ahead of us. You know, yeah. there weren't, yeah. that was four. Yeah. There were three art schools at the time right. in the country. So the, the actual output of young artists was not big. Yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. So it was a really interesting time to be part of that world, I think. It was a very interesting time. And the other fact that, um, you know, the women's movement was starting at yeah. that same time, it, yeah. they all became part of the same thing. And, you know, obviously, John had made, obviously there were male students too. Uh, John Gibbons comes to mind, for instance. Mm. I think he mm. came from Limerick to the School of Art in Cork at maybe our fourth year. I think I was in fourth year when John came. But yeah, we were we were all like very determined as art students, not even when we finished as art students. We were very determined. That's what we were doing and that's what we were going to continue to do. That's fantastic. However, however that was going to happen. Yeah. Just finally, Vivian, what would you say is, is John's kind of long lasting legacy? I think it wasn't just in his, like obviously he was a very influential teacher. 
but it was in the quality of his own work. Mm. And that's why it's fantastic that there's a, an exhibition now. I think this the quality of his thinking that came through in his work was really very powerful, very intellectual, actually. He, he himself was very articulate, was completely kind of driven in that area of, you know, mid 20th century, when I say mm-hmm. mid, I'm talking about 60s, you know, mm-hmm. plus. It was obviously 1971 by the time I met John. But he was like a fully, fully developed sculptor himself at that stage. Mm-hmm. And he was working really at the kind of cutting edge of what was going on. And he continued to do that in Ireland, where he was one of the few people who was making what would have been considered contemporary mm. sculpture then and uh, the quality of his work which i think has lasted i love now when there are um, uh, images on tv from the de- department yeah. of health piece that's outside the department of health yeah. building which term. once upon a time was at the other side of that building that's a very strong sculpture uh, and i think all of his work the public work he made is very strong Mm. I guess that was one of the other influences, in a sense, just seeing him, you know, working on different scale commissions. So the issue of scale was one that was quite fascinating. Seeing him work at different scales, sometimes model making for much larger works, Mm -hmm. but also making small scale works that were in themselves complete pieces Mm -hmm. uh, that weren't intended to be made as bigger works. So I think perhaps that's one of the lasting things maybe gave to me personally is to consider the scale of each work I'm working on in its own right, you know. One thing I would like to say, what I really remember about John is he teaching modelling. Even though he was working himself in an abstract style and we were working similarly in, in a very abstract way, he always felt that that needed to be grounded in real knowledge of form of all kinds. Mm-hmm. He was very, very kind of questioning about form. Mm-hmm. And um, he used to have um, life modelling. He used to teach life modelling, mm-hmm. have us do life modelling and come in. If he wasn't teaching it himself, he'd come in and check out what was the state of our life modelling. But actually, I, I used to love life modelling. And it's one of the things, even he, he himself used to draw very nicely, you draw from the figure, really, inter- really beautiful drawings. And um, that sense of like, actually, I love life modelling, you know, mm-hmm. I loved it then. And I kind of came at it again. I, I made a head about five years ago and hadn't since my student days. So yeah. it was that kind of wonderful connection all those years through. I think that love of it would have come from his kind of um, making me realise that, you know, looking at the figure, looking at any form is mm. what matters. You know, it's just mm. like if you work with the figure and you're, you're, you're still thinking abstractly. Mm. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, he just seems to have been so influential and just uh, talking to you all, it just paints this th- a kind of a glorious picture of what it must have been like to be part of that college and part of that crew and part of that whole scene. And we're obviously telling you the good stories. I mean, if we get <laughs> together, we probably tell other stories. I, I think lastly, he also had the respect of people in Cork City who were working kind of uh, in the not just construction, architecture, engineering um, like he would have been process. well known yeah. in that kind of um, built environment, really. I'm going to let you go, Vivian. Okay. <laughs> Thanks a million. Thanks a lot.
Danny McCarthy is a sound artist based in Cork and has created an enormous body of work over the years, being one of the pioneers of sound art in Ireland. He's a director of the Sirius Art Centre in Cove and also is involved in a number of travel art festivals. He was the founding director of Cork's famous Triscoll Art Centre and it was during this time that he became friendly with John Burke. It's lovely to meet you. You were good friends with John, is that right? Yeah, I'd be pretty good friends with him, yeah. So I suppose the first thing I want to ask you is, how did you get to know each other? I don't know where we, we met first. You know, it was probably in a pub somewhere, you know, in, in Cork in the late 70s. You know, um, around the, the time of the founding of Triscoll, I was involved in the, the founding of Triscoll Art Centre, and John would have been around that time as well, you know. So probably through that um, would probably be around the first time I kind of met him, you know. Where we kind of worked closely together would have been on the SAID exhibitions. So you can tell me a bit more about yeah, well, what it was like initially we kind of started Triscoll in 78 and that was going strong. I kind of I kind of got more friendly with John then and one of the ideas that we kind of came up with and Robbie MacDonald was involved in it as well was um, an exhibition called SAID which stands for Sculpture and Drawing Exhibition. So, I mean, there was nothing like this kind of happening in the country at the time, except, say, in Dublin, you had the Living Art and Limerick Eva. But we wanted to kind of do something that was pretty special and different, like concentrating on sculpture and drawing, you know. So we kind of started working on that. And John was brilliant and that kind of thing because he was a very unusual person in the sense that you could meet him, you know, down in North Main Street talking with the winos, you know, and 10 minutes later you could meet him talking to the regional manager of the Bank of Ireland down on Patrick Street, you know, yeah. that he was extremely popular in all stratas of society and got on very well with with everyone in that sense, you know. Um, we started working on that together. And um, I mean, I never realized like how kind of well connected he was until um, we started doing this. Like, um, you know, we had a fundraising committee for uh, an organizing committee. The chairperson was John. I was vice chair. And then you had um, a committee which was consisted of Jim Buckley, Hilary Carey, um, which would be Hilary Pyle, who wound up in the National Gallery Um charge of the Yates collection and that. Richard Langford headed the VEC, Robert MacDonald, Elish was on the committee, Vivian Roach was on it and Charles Quain. Yeah. So it was, you know, quite innovative at the, at the time doing something like that. Like, and I mean, the Crawford was, I suppose, you'd put it in the dark ages would be one way of describing Rifle, it. Very traditional sort of work. Very, 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 very traditional. Like, so yeah. we wanted to have the show there. I mean, that was the only place that could possibly hold it. And Dermot O'Donovan, who was a director there at the time, I remember uh, he was on the committee, but we had a meeting with him and then um, trying to persuade him that, um, you know, installation was a valid art form, you know, yeah. that, you know, we had to have installation or had to have it open for installation, you know, and then... Um, did you find you know, much resistance at the time or...? Yeah, quite quite a bit of resistance in a sense that people weren't aware of contemporary art, you know. And whereas John wouldn't be involved in installation or performance or that type of thing, you know, he would support it, yeah. you know. And like the one thing with him, you know, he had his own particular style in that, but he recognised good art when he saw it, no matter what art form it took mm-hmm. and was happy to support it then, you know. Mm-hmm. And we had a selector for it then who John got. He had studied with him when he was in the, the Royal in, in England called Brian Neal. He was head of sculpture in the Royal. So it, it gave it kind of that extra credibility that um, it needed at the time and that kind of thing, you know. And was there more than one Sage exhibition then? Did that go on for a number of years? There was two uh, in total. Mm-hmm. That was, I think, 82, 83. And um, 
then Cork 800 came up, which was kind of the 800th anniversary of Cork. Mm. So there was an exhibition called Cork Art Now Can 85. So yeah. that kind of, that was again a bigger show than, than Said, you know, and incorporated all art forms, you know. But kind of Said that John and myself had set up was kind of the forerunner of, of those kind of things. And at that stage, the Crawford was kind of looking up the contemporary work, you know. And the Tristel was up and running by then, I suppose. So a lot of the contemporary work probably started to... Yeah, yeah Tristel started in 78 in a place called Beasley Street, uh, which is just off of um, just off the South Mall. And then we moved up to Bridge Street. We had two incarnations in Bridge Street. And then we eventually got the money to buy where, where it is now. Were you in college with John? No, um, he'd been older than me, you know. Yeah. I think about four or five years older. Yeah. No, my, I went to college in Dublin. I, but I mean, he, uh, Vivian and Elish and Maud went to college with him, or were students of his. And, yes, yes, yes. You know, whereas their work wouldn't at all resemble John's. Yeah. Uh, I think they, they still carry to this day his influence on perfection in the quality of the work, you know, the attention to detail. Like, I mean, if you look at any John sculptures, they're all really, really well made. The welding is yeah. always perfect. They're just coming out of the wrappings downstairs here in the art centre yeah. and they're absolutely stunning. I mean, he carried that craftsmanship and I think certainly, I mean, the girls are always quoted as um, as having been taught by John Burke, you know, but I think one of the biggest things that they carry through, I mean, if you look at Elise or Vivian's and Maud's work, like the, the quality of finish and craftsmanship is, is there, even though it looks nothing at all like John's, yeah. but that, that quality of work is there, you know. I suppose an ethos that another kind of yeah uh, another interesting thing about him I always found was I'd say Said was probably the only thing he ever joined he hated being on any kind of committee you know um, for I don't know the only, the only thing that I used to slag him was the only thing he ever joined was Astana you know yeah. because you know he was I was a director of the Sculpture Society of Ireland at the time he wouldn't join the Sculpture Society of Ireland we offered him free membership of the Sculpture Factory wouldn't yeah. you know he wouldn't become a member of anything yeah. you, know? you know the way he kind of kept going after the Crawford and that kind of thing you know I mean he was just unique I suppose as the you know one of a kind and you know I'd love to be talking to him now to slag, to slag him off for doing a performance piece and, and you know in his grave like being buried standing up you know Isn't that brilliant actually I must yeah. go and visit him at some point because yeah. I didn't know that I just found it out I'd be slagging him off because he'd be slagging me for doing performance and whatever you know I could I could slag him now like you know you, you finished up doing performance yourself you know <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. The final performance, yeah, yeah. What ways in which would you think that he influenced you in your own work? I'd say the only influence, like, is his professionalism, you know? Yeah. Like, he was very professional in his work and he took his work very serious, you know? I think that that would be an influence of certainly something we would certainly have in, in common as well, you know? But it's great to see him being recognised, you know, more again, like, because, I mean, like yourself, there's probably a whole generation like that he's, you know, he's only a footnote where he should be a headline, you know? If that's what it seems to me, it seems like um, he's not, his work isn't made enough of, like, I mean, he seems to have influenced so many people and had so many students that have gone on to just amazing careers that, yeah. that obviously speaks to the fact that he was a brilliant teacher in the first place. And then why don't we have a big book, you know, about his life yeah. and work? I, I just don't understand. There was talks a number of years ago, like of having a retrospective in the Crawford and that, but it never came to anything, unfortunately, you know. Well, maybe this can be the start of something that develops into something even bigger. True, definitely, you know, but I think, as you say, it may be a start to, you know, that it can grow from there, you know. Danny, I'm going to let you go because the line's not great.
Maybe we'll catch up. Lovely to talk to you. Yeah. Okay. All right. Thanks, Danny. Talk to you then. Okay. Thanks, Emil. Bye-bye. Sean Lynch is an artist and curator based in Askeaton. He works alongside his partner, Michelle Horrigan, at Askeaton Contemporary Arts, where they have enabled, since 2006, over 100 artist residencies, site-specific projects and publications to be made in the southwest of Ireland. Sean's interest in unearthing hidden histories led him to the discovery of a piece of John Burke's in a council storage yard in Cork, which had been removed following a petition of the residents of the Fairhill estate. The unearthed work featured as part of Sean's adventure capital piece, which represented Ireland at the Venice Biennale in 2015. Sean came to the Art Centre for a chat about the influence of John Burke on Irish art. You've had an interest in his work for a long time now, so... Well, I guess in some way you pick up tacit knowledge bit by bit or it never comes to you in one big yeah. lump and I started kind of becoming aware of some some of these practices around um, well, heavy metal sculpture if you want to call it that back in Limerick in the art school yeah. because it was always a very interesting place the sculpture department there in the late 90s where you had a lot of people doing performance work and then at the same time you had a lot of people making big sculptures and uh, the class sizes were a lot less back then. There was more resources being afforded mm-hmm. to the art college, so big heavy materials could be purchased. Mm-hmm. And uh, people like Maud Cotter or Elish O'Connell would come and give talks. Every Thursday morning there would be a, a visiting uh, artist mm-hmm. explaining their work and their life around it. And gradually then by beginning to visit Cork or uh, becoming more familiar with a lot of the visual art organisations or the apparatus around the presentation of work in public spaces, I began coming by these pieces by John Burke. And the work seemed to come from somewhere else, in every kind of way, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, it wasn't of the Seamus Murphy school of stone. Mm-hmm. It, it seemed to, even by the late 1990s, was very questioned in terms of it being a good art form because the pieces themselves sometimes the shapes were quite aggressive Mm -hmm. for the forms of public art that were becoming more typically prevalent at the time. I mean this in terms of every village would have to have a statue of the famous man from that village who invented the submarine or (laughs) went to the South Pole or was a general busybody telling everybody else what to do. And these pieces were not about that. They were about a wildness of material with Burke. They didn't try to explain themselves. So, of course, once you talk about that notion of an enigma, wondering what something is, you want to find out more. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess a couple of years later, I was putting together a publication that was based on uh, very analytically examining newspaper coverage of how art and artists were represented in uh, Irish newspapers from around the 1950s up till the early 2000s. And so... Not so much reviews or how people were writing about art, but instead when artists hit the news Mm -hmm. and 
how this would be reported in a journalistic sense. It was a real learning experience for me because a lot of stories about artists would get onto the front page of the newspaper. Mm. That doesn't really happen after the year 2000. They're in the lifestyle section on a Saturday yeah. instead. Yeah. And I came by this article in the Evening Echo and it was about a sculpture in the north part of Cork City on a housing estate that the neighbours had began petitioning door to door, making a petition together to remove the sculpture. And there was two reasons for that. Kids were climbing all over it and they could fall Mm. maybe. And then later at night time, teenagers were drinking cider in its shadow. And so this was super interesting that a sculpture could accommodate all the things we really (laughs) want to do (laughs) at that age (laughs) and do that in a very democratic way. Not so much for the parents, of course. And uh, the sculpture was removed off the site and I began looking for it. And the title of the work was Uniflow. And eventually I found it half buried in a Cork City Council storage area quite close to the housing estate. And I was very interested in this situation. I didn't want to be judgmental about anything, about whether this was a good news situation for the neighbourhood that the sculpture had disappeared or whether it was uh, could be considered a failure because the artistic work uh, was given such criticism and removed. Mm. I rather wanted to think about it much more holistically mm. and realise this is so fantastic, what a fantastic situation that this piece keeps living a life, you know? Yeah, yeah. It started off as pieces of metal, the artists intervened into that, kids would climb all over it, mm. they get waving pipe and hit the sculpture late at night when they drink <laughs> and it would make a big sound all over the yeah, estate yeah. and wake everybody. And it all seemed to point towards some other kind of modern art where uh, pieces like Burke's, uh, like a Picasso in the plaza in Chicago or an Anthony Cairo in the Metropolitan Museum in New mm. York, they seemed so much more mild in comparison to these wild shapes and wild Mm. sculptures provoking wild things that happen around the place. And for all those reasons, I thought actually, this is art that's moving and wants to give a lot and be active in whatever sense. They were my thoughts anyway at the time. And I made an exhibition for the Venice Biennale in 2015. And one part of the show was to make a small uh, reconstruction of the sculpture and then there was an animated sequence in the accompanying video work where the sculpture that was in the hole in Cork uh, began to shake itself off in the cartoon okay, okay. and began to talk mm. and began to guide other people around a lot of the social sphere of uh, public space that I was examining at the time. Mm. Um, so that was really exciting, 400,000 people saw the show and uh, I like to think it gave a platform to some of these thoughts or investigations that I was involved in at that time. Did you, if it were me, and you're clearly interested in the man's work, so should there not have, we have not have been a bit more reverential towards that work? Yeah, it's a really interesting situation. I know from talking to people who knew him and were very familiar with the work that he believed the clean lines of it mm. and it should be painted up very vividly Mm. and should look really good Mm. so I imagine a degree of heartbreak in that situation if he had seen it in the hole at the same time from my point of view I keep thinking about ancient Rome and you know people digging up the statues out of the ground trying to figure out what civilization inspired those scenarios and what that would be and 
that in the time times we live in, history moves so quickly and yeah. situations are also networked now that things move along at a faster pace. So maybe uh, there's something about the ruins of Cork in okay. that piece or yeah, the, yeah. how we learn to look at histories from 10 or 20 or 30 years ago and understand them as part of our lived experience of now. And on that idea, uh, I remember talking to Donald Dilworth when he was alive in the sculpture factory in Cork and Donald, before he began working there, uh, was an employee of the shipyards. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the material that Burke would have got for his sculptures would have come from uh, subcontractors who were involved in making a certain part of the ship yeah. uh, that was being constructed at the time. And so he'd be essentially taking a lot of leftovers from these sheds or these uh, fabrication companies mm -hmm or sometimes he might get in at, at night time there to use some of the equipment to make mm -hmm. specific shapes. And this was happening in the, in, he had a lot of commissions in the, in the 1980s. And uh, as that was happening, and as his work was becoming more publicly cited in different mm -hmm. places around Cork and people like Eilish and Maud and Vivian Roach becoming important practices, the shipyards were falling away and they were mm. going to be closed soon. And I'm very interested in that relationship around deindustrialization, especially in Cork, where you had the Ford factory closing, the shipyards closing down, all this heavy material somehow that was used for the purpose of industry now was free. Yeah. It was uh, no longer was going to be a ship or it was no longer going to be part of a big industrial process. Mm -hmm. And so I, I think a lot about Burke's work as a breathing out of Cork at that time. Okay. You know, yeah, yeah. that Something it's like um, this material becomes something else or has another kind of latency or afterlife. Yeah. And I really like that idea that his, in, his processes of making were very much intrinsically linked into the social and industrial histories of, of Cork mm. City. Did you ever have an opportunity to meet the man? No, I, I, I never came by him, but I'm kind of a lot of the time, most of my work is like being a detective anyway, so, mm. and I trained in history, so a lot of the time it's looking at what documents are there and not always deciding whether they're a true representation of the scenario as how it was, but then talking to people on the ground and getting a sensation of what was happening when these pieces were being made. And so, to my understanding, Burke would have come back from London. He would have been quite gung-ho around getting commissions in Cork. To some degree, Scott Talon Walker would have supported him. Um, on some pieces and then hustling the city council like mm. sometimes artists are afraid to acknowledge that one of their roles is to hustle yeah. and to make their own context for themselves and I always thought Burke's work was very unapologetic about doing that and um, so it's I mean you can drive around Cork and see so many of the pieces now mm. I mean I remember speaking to Richard Wood and he had a work that was um, still is placed on his farmyard as you drive out the road out of Cork and that's quite incredible to mm. think of a piece of modern art sited in the farmyard and what that would yeah, mean yeah, and yeah. the belief that that should be an important location mm. for where uh, society is and where art is based mm. and that seems so much wilder so much more liberal than just landing it in front of a skyscraper.
you know, yeah, for yeah. rich people, yes, you know. Yeah. So for all those reasons, I thought he was a proponent of a very democratic form of art that was always embracing of context, but at the same time was not serving it. It was always mm. wanting to edge things along. Mm -hmm. And I think they're fantastic models for any young artist or for people involved in art to be aware of. Absolutely. Like, I think it's it's so important that we celebrate him here, especially. Yeah. You know, obviously Cork is a very important part of his life, but as Clonmel is his hometown, he should be really celebrated here. I mean, it's interesting from the point of view that it, be, it begins a kind of conversation with other geographical locations, exhibitions like this, because, for example, you can look at the Basque country um, and a lot of the sculptors that were very active there and how they have in turn influenced other people. And it's an area I know a little bit and I know some artists there and they're very much, even to this day, about non-narrative. You know, that they don't believe in this notion that you make something and then you have to give a big, long-winded explanation of why you made it in the first place for it to be valid or understood. Yeah, yeah. And so I think there's comparisons there in some way with the likes of Burke that the situation is there, but why would you explain it? Why would you deny the tactility of looking at something and... Um, being able to freeform your own thoughts around it. And like a lot of the yeah. titles do this as well. In do you many think ways. that was very deliberate then on his part that um that he didn't ever explain them, that he left it totally up to is that why we can't find an awful lot of stuff in books that we can read and study about? Like yeah, that? I mean that's a nice uh, notion to get to move along with to get yeah. people interested that it's a degree of a mystery, you know? Yeah. That's really re a really interesting curatorial slant with it. I mean, you think about Cork at that time, like uh, the dominance of the stone carving traditions, the kind of vocational aspect of all of that, that you start chiseling away at the stone and you're only, like Michelangelo, you're only releasing the great figure out yeah, of the stone, yeah. whoever it is, yeah. Michael Collins and yeah. Hugh Lane or different figures like this. and that notion is just blown apart by this work arriving there, you know, yeah. which is about industrial processes, yeah. not about um, the uh, vocational skill, you know, yeah. that it's about the hustle of introducing a new grammar of art to a place that was not ready to receive it or perhaps will never be ready to receive it. Um, and that's a very punk idea. Jeez, it's much yeah. less romantic than the, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. 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 That's something very exciting and all that. Mm. So it's great the show is here and that it begins that people begin to assess this stuff because so much of it is still in the public realm and it's all still around and it's pointy and it looks aggressive and maybe kids will start drinking cider in its shadows <laughs> again. So there's a big body of work there and there's a period of time uh, where it's coalesced. There's um, a very rich formal vocabulary there, on top of all those stories about what someone said about someone else's artwork that mm, I'm mm. sure will come to the centre here in the yeah. next while and discussions and the fact that it's a really good country here for keeping memory alive, you know? Mm, mm. So um, all those things are ahead for the show and that's very exciting. Okay. Thanks a million for dropping by Super. and thanks a million for your time. Too. Yeah, great.
And that is it for this special edition of the South Tip Arts Podcast. Thanks to everybody who joined me for a chat. Uh, if you're still with us, thanks for listening. And do try and get to see the John Burke Retrospective Exhibition here at South Tipperary Arts Centre, which runs until the 19th of September. If you'd like to get in touch with the podcast, the email address is southtipartspodcast at gmail.com. That's southtipartspodcast at gmail.com. Talk to you all next time. <laughs> <laughs>